Well, welcome back after our Thanksgiving break. It's good to see you today. We are in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to go ahead and read through the first 16 verses. We started this section a couple of weeks ago, but we did not finish it. We're going to, by God's grace, finish it today. So let's go ahead and read through those first 16 verses, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at this very famous section of Matthew's Gospel. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I pointed out when we first started this session a couple of weeks ago that I have already done an in-depth teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, so we're not going to spend as much time on these chapters as I have done in the past. If you really want to go in-depth, you can go ahead and pull that up. It's online, and uh, it's also available by CD. I'm sure Florence can uh, burn you a copy of that if you need it. But nevertheless, this is a section of great importance. It's probably the most famous section of Matthew's Gospel. It's certainly the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world by the greatest preacher the world has ever known, Jesus Christ. And we started when we began to look at this famous sermon at the most famous section of the most famous part of the most famous sermon ever delivered by the most famous preacher. And that was the section known as the Beatitudes. Uh, we looked first at Beatitudes 1, 2, 3, and 4. And there is a sense in which you can divide up the Beatitudes. Um, they are actually not the heart of the gospel. This is really just an introduction. Jesus doesn't really begin the sermon proper until about verse 17. But nevertheless, the Beatitudes can be divided into basically two sections. Uh, the first four Beatitudes deal with the inner attitude of the believer. And then Beatitudes 5 through 7 deal with the inner character of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And then verses 13 and following, or verses 6 through 13 and following, really do with the outer influence that the citizen of the kingdom of God is supposed to have in the world. So just a quick review of what we did 
when we started this section. We said in the first four, we have the inner attitude of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And the citizen of the kingdom of God is just that. He is a citizen or a subject of another king. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not intended to be a prescription. I think I pointed that out to you the last time. Jesus is not saying if you live like this, you will become a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is what you need to do in order to enter in to my everlasting fellowship. What Jesus is doing is describing what our lives should be if we are, in fact, a, kingdom of the God, a citizen of the kingdom of God. So this is not a prescription for things that we have to do in order to get into the kingdom. Jesus is saying this is a description of a person's life if they are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he says they have certain attitudes. The first attitude is that they are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we ask the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit. I said to be poor in spirit means that you recognize your own spiritual poverty. I talked about that little children's book that we oftentimes read, The Little Engine That Could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The idea that if you just have a positive mental attitude, you will be able to overcome any adversity, any obstacle that is put in your way. And Jesus takes that whole idea and he turns it on its head. And you know, that's really what the Sermon on the Mount does. It, it takes everything that this world teaches us and it turns it upside down. It turns it upside down. What Jesus says is that the citizen of the kingdom of God recognizes that they can't do it. It's not the little engine that could, it's the little engine that couldn't. It's the recognition that you and I have nothing that we can offer in terms of righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. How does the old hymn put it? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus said that the citizen of the kingdom of God has that kind of an attitude. They are poor in spirit. He goes on to say that a citizen of the kingdom of God is also mournful. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we acknowledge the fact that there are many things to mourn about in life. We can mourn the loss of a loved one. We can mourn the state of the world. We can mourn missed opportunities and regrets. But that's not what really Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about mourning, that second beatitude flows from the first. The reason we mourn is because we are poor in spirit. And we mourn what? We mourn the fact that we don't have anything to offer, that we have no spiritual capital whatsoever. We mourn our sin. And we not only mourn our sin, which is to say we acknowledge it, but we also bewail it. That's what we say in the confession of sin every Sunday. We acknowledge and we bewail. It is one thing to admit that you're a sinner. It's another thing to be sorry for it. I pointed out that the little boy that gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught, but it doesn't mean he's sorry he did it. And there are times when we recognize that we have done wrong, but we're not really sorry for it. We're only sorry that it didn't work out the way we intended. So Jesus, you see, is looking at the inner attitude. That's the wonderful thing about the colic for purity. We begin our service with that, that prayer. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from what? Whom no secrets are hid. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but God is concerned with our inner attitude. 
And if you're truly a citizen of the kingdom of God, you admit your spiritual poverty. You admit that you have nothing to offer to God save the sin from which you need to be redeemed when it comes to salvation. The second thing you do is you not only acknowledge your sin, you are sorry for your sin. To repent doesn't simply mean to be sorry. It means to be sorry enough to quit. There's a third attitude, Jesus says, when it comes to a citizen of the kingdom of God. They are meek. He says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that's not what we think. We live in a world in which we're encouraged to be strong and assertive. We don't think that it's the meek that inherit the earth. We think that the meek inherit the dirt. It's the strong who overcome. But what does it mean to be meek? Well, to be meek doesn't mean to be weak. Those two things are not synonymous at all. We pointed out that in the Old Testament, Moses was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. If you know anything about Moses, you know he was by no means weak. It took great courage to go and stand before Pharaoh, this most powerful ruler on the face of the earth, and say, let my people go. It took courage to lead the children of Israel through their 40 years in the wilderness, constantly complaining and sometimes conspiring against them. When the Bible talks about meekness, what it means is, it's an attitude by which you leave it up to God to avenge. You trust in God that He will set the record straight. You don't feel the need to defend yourself or to vindicate yourself. You trust that God will do that for you. And then finally, there is this quality, this inner attitude. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. And we said righteousness here does not necessarily mean perfection of life, it means a right relationship. To be a righteous person means to be in a right relationship. They hunger and thirst for a right relationship. Right relationship with who? Well, first of all, a right relationship with God Himself. They admit that they're not in a right relationship with God. This is why the Bible says none of us, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, is automatically a child of God. We are all creatures of God, but you become a child of God how? By adoption. By grace. Jesus actually described the Pharisees who thought that they were the children of Abraham as the children of the devil. You can imagine that made him very popular with the Jewish religious leaders. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness means that you hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God which you do not have. You see how all of this flows. To be poor in spirit leads to a mournful attitude, to acknowledgement and bewailing of your sins. It leads you to be meek. It recognizes that you have nothing to defend. You have no honor to defend. Spiritually speaking, you have to trust that God will defend. And you hunger, you thirst, you long for that right relationship with God. And once you have that right relationship with God, you then long to have a right relationship with God's people. So the Beatitudes seem rather simple when you first read through them, but when you really begin to plumb the depths, this becomes very challenging, doesn't it? And yet Jesus said this is the inner attitude of a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, ask yourself, are these the characteristics of my life? Well, once Jesus deals with the inner attitude of the citizen of the kingdom of God, he then goes on to deal with the inner character of the citizen of the kingdom of God. These are the attitudes that we have to have, but attitudes, if we have them, should make a difference in the way we live. And that's what the rest of the Beatitudes are basically all about. 
Jesus is saying that if you are poor in spirit, if you mourn for your sin, if you are meek, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then the result will be mercy, purity of heart, a desire to be a peacemaker, and a willingness to be persecuted for the cause of Christ. What is mercy? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What exactly is mercy? Well, some people have said that it's the same thing as grace. And what is grace? Now, this is a test. This is a test. Sometimes I say this is not a test. There's no right or wrong answer. There is a right and a wrong answer for this one. You've been sitting under my teaching now for about two years. What is grace? Oh, boy. I want you to write this down if you take notes. You need to know this. Because if you're saved by grace, you need to know what grace is. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. God shows you favor. It's undeserved and it's unearned. That's why Paul says we're saved by grace. Because he says we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Well, if you're dead, you can't do very much, can you, spiritually speaking? So what does God have to do? He has to make you alive in the same way that Mary and Martha could stand outside the tomb of their brother Lazarus when he died and plead for him to come out, and he could not do it because he was dead. Jesus had to come and make him alive again. And then when Jesus said, come forth, we're told he came out. The same thing is true spiritually speaking of us. You and I, Paul says in Ephesians 2, are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And somebody can preach to us until the cows come home, but if you're spiritually dead, you no longer can hear, nor can you respond. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive. He makes us alive, and that's why Paul says it is by grace that you have been saved, because it's undeserved and it's unearned. And yet it's favor toward those who have no favor. So that is what grace is. And some people have said, well, mercy is the same thing as grace. It is closely related, but it is not identical. Mercy, to put it simply, is grace in action. In particular, it is compassion towards the pitiful. Pitiful. It's compassion toward the pitiful. And because they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, I want you to keep your finger there in Matthew's gospel and turn over to Luke. Not hard to find. Matthew, next book is Mark, next book is Luke. Okay. So turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Well, start at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, now this is interesting, desiring to justify himself, now, what does it mean to be justified? That's a legal term. Simply put, to be justified means to be lined up. 
All right? that's, that's what we're all looking for. When, when the Bible says to be righteous, to have a right relationship with God, it means that we have to get lined up with God. We are not lined up with God, but we need to get lined up with God. Uh, if you do any kind of word processing and you want to make the document look neat and tidy, what do you do? You blacken in the screen, you go to the top, you hit the justified button, and what happens to the margins? They go flush. They line up, don't they? That's what it means to be justified. Biblically speaking, it means to be lined up with God. And the question is, how do you get lined up with God? Now, isn't it interesting that we're told that this lawyer asks a question of Jesus, and when Jesus gives him the answer in an attempt to well, justify himself, he wants to line himself up with God, and he thinks he can do it. What does he lack here? Well, one thing he lacks is what Jesus has been talking about in these Beatitudes, a poverty of spirit. He thinks he has something that he can contribute to the process, doesn't he? And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a parable, probably one of the most famous and familiar parables in all of Scripture. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those of you who actually went to the Holy Land with me, you stood there on that precipice, looking down into what is known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death, the very place which is the setting for this parable. That road, that crooked road that comes up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And you can see why that would have been the case. That path is completely unchanged almost for 2,000 years. It's the same route. You can actually hike it from Jerusalem to Jericho and back again. The same route that Jesus would have taken on any number of occasions in the setting for this parable. It's so deep, that canyon, that the sun only shines in the deepest part of it at one point in the day at noon when the sun is directly overhead. Otherwise, it's in shadow. That's why it's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And it was a place, a haven for robbers and bandits. And so everybody listening to Jesus' parable would have understood very clearly the setting. They had been there. They knew it. They knew it was a dangerous place. I'm sure that there are certain places in Charleston that you used to not go. When I lived here 20-some years ago, we never went north of Calhoun Street. Well, that's completely changed now. All of that's gentrified, and there are wonderful restaurants and shops and that sort of thing up there. But every town, every community has those places that are no-go zones. And this is one of those. And we're told that as this man was going down, he was attacked. He fell among robbers who stripped him, they left him naked. They beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite was somebody who assisted in the worship at the temple, when he came to that place, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus turned to the lawyer and he said, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, I love the NIV version, it says, I suppose 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is a powerful parable for a number of reasons. First of all, it's powerful because we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Any self-respecting Jew in the first century would have thought that was an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. Now, Philip Henry Sheridan was the commander of the United States Army in the 1870s and the 1880s during the Indian Wars. And somebody once asked him about the good Indians, and he said, the only good Indians are dead Indians. That was his attitude. That was the attitude of a great many people, unfortunately, in that day and age. It was the attitude of Jews when it came to Samaritans. <laughs> There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. There are Samaritans and then there are good people, but the two never go together. That's what's so shocking about this parable. And Jesus oftentimes told stories like this that were shocking, that were challenging. But of course, with all of Jesus' parables, the point is that you and I are supposed to figure out where we fit into the story. That, that, whenever you read a parable by Jesus or you hear a parable by Jesus, you need to understand Jesus is telling that story and you are supposed to figure out where you fit into it. So here's the question. Who are you in this story? Are you the, the priest that wanders by on the other side? Now, you know, the priest had a good excuse for this. He was on his way up to Jerusalem. He was going up there to worship. He was not allowed to in any way sully his hands, particularly with, a, with, with somebody who was bleeding. That would have made him ritually unclean. It would have prevented him from worshiping. So, hey, listen, I'm on my way to church. I'm in a hurry. I don't have time to stop. And so he did what? He passed by on the other side of the road. You ever passed by on the other side of the road? And a Levite came. And the Levite... Likewise, on his way to church. I mean, that's a good thing, folks. At least I'm going. I'm not sleeping in. I'm not running the turkey trot. I'm on my way. When he sees the man, he does what? He passes by on the other side. And then there comes this Samaritan, this foreigner, this man who's probably not on his way anywhere. And he sees a Jew over there, and he knows that the Jews regard him as what? as the, the dregs of society, as of no value, no consequence whatsoever. The Jews absolutely despised the Samaritans, hated them more than they hated the Gentiles, regarded them as half-breeds, and yet he sees an enemy of his own people, someone who if he was healthy and well would have despised him, and he does what? He gets off his mount. He goes over there and he cares for this man. He pours on oil and wine. He takes this man to an innkeeper. He has the innkeeper take care of him, and at his own expense, he cares for his welfare and promises that if there's any other cost accrued, he would come back and pay it in full. Who are you in the story? <laughs> Who are you in the story? Now, somebody may be out there thinking to themselves, well, I guess I'm the priest. Some of you may be thinking, well, I guess I'm the Levite. There may be somebody out there far more righteous than the rector who's thinking to themselves, well, I really am the good Samaritan. I'm going to tell you right now who you are in this story. I'm going to tell you as individuals who you are in this story. Are you ready? 
You got it, Miss M. <laughs> now, that's a shocking picture. And when I first put it up, it's a fa fantastic painting. Brian McGreevy said, oh, I don't know if I would show that to the class. <laughs> uh, I think he was afraid I was going to offend somebody's Victorian sensibilities. But it's a powerful picture. That is a painting of the Good Samaritan. And if you want to know who you are in this story, you are the man that is naked. We have nothing, you see, to offer to God. We are beaten. We are broken. We are half dead, ravaged by sin and by the devil. And we have nothing to offer to God. And one who was despised and rejected by his people came into the world. And when all the righteous were passing by on the other side, he came to our rescue. And he picked us up. And at his own great personal cost, the price of his own blood, he rescued us. And he healed us. And he made us well. We're the man bleeding and broken on the side of the road. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And he has come and he has shown us mercy. And then he turns to us and he says, now you go and you do likewise. See, it's when you realize who you really are in this story that you begin to fall in love with Jesus Christ. And when you begin to fall in love with Jesus Christ, you begin to take on the character of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, turn to Psalm 24. You'll get a picture of it. This is one of the principles of biblical interpretation, by the way. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you want to know what one passage of Scripture means, sometimes all you have to do is look at another passage of Scripture. If you want to know what it means to be pure in heart, take a look at Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. To be pure in heart, my friends, means to have an undivided heart. And oftentimes we do have divided hearts, don't we? We honor God with our lips, but the scripture says our hearts are what? Far from him. Sometimes we, we say we love Christ and there's a little part of our heart that does, but there's a greater part of our heart that what? Loves the world and all that the world has to offer. And that's an undivided heart, which is a pure heart. And that's really what Jesus is getting at. He's saying a citizen of the kingdom of God 
has mourned for their sin. They are meek. They have been merciful because they have received mercy. And as a consequence of that, they have an undivided heart. Their heart is set on God and God alone, not on the things of life. And because they have an undivided heart, they also have a desire to what? Be peacemakers. To be peacemakers. Now, when it talks about peacemakers, what does it mean? Does it simply mean an absence of conflict? You know, it's one of the ironic things about Jesus' ministry, that he came into this world to be the prince of peace, and yet everywhere he went, he brought division. And he brought division because that's what the truth does. So obviously, when this parable talks about being peacemakers, it doesn't mean that you and I are going to be able to smite the world right and bring peace to mankind. When it talks about being a peacemaker, what it really means is having peace with God and bringing others to the point where they too can have peace with God. It's bringing other people to the knowledge of the fact that they do not have a right relationship with God, that they are in fact at war with God. Did you ever notice that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses? Did you ever notice that? Now, sometimes the Presbyterians say debts. That's okay. But trespasses is a better word. Sorry, Presbyterians. But trespasses is a better word. If for this reason alone, that is exactly what we did in Eden. We trespassed on God's territory. If you remember the story of Caesar, Julius Caesar, and the great war that erupted in Rome, You'll recall that the Senate had explained to Caesar that if he remained on his side of the Rubicon and they remained on their side of the Rubicon, there would be peace. But if he crossed the Rubicon, there would be what? War. And what did Caesar do? Remain nicely on his side of the Rubicon? No, we're told that he went charging into the Rubicon with the words, the die is cast, and inaugurated this great conflict. Well, that is exactly what we have done with God, you see. That's what happened in Eden. God set man and the woman there in the garden, and he set boundaries. The boundaries were there for their benefit, simply to remind them that God was God and they were creatures. Now, they were exalted creatures. They were highly exalted. They were God's regents over all of creation. But they were nevertheless creatures. And he said, you may eat of any tree in the midst of the garden except for one. Just, just one. Now, there must have been thousands of trees there in the garden. And he said, there's only one. That, that's my tree. Just a reminder that I'm God and you're not. You can have everything else, though. Go for it. Have fun. Ah, but you see, when somebody says, you can't have that one, that's the only one we want. And they did what? They ate of that tree. And by eating of that tree, what they were basically saying is, I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. And in so doing, because that was God's tree and not their tree, they had what? Trespassed on his territory. And that is the nature of all sin, my friends. It is to trespass on God's territory. And that's why we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And every time we trespass on God's territory, we declare war. We're at war with God from the moment we come out of our mother's womb. What's the first word a child learns to say? Don't give me dada. No. 
no. There is a rebel spirit in every single one of us. We have to recognize that we need peace with God. But here's the funny thing. Here's the tragic thing. When you declare war on God, you're not going to win. And, and, and if you're wise, you'll realize that. There's an expression in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, called hitting bottom. And, and they'll say that some people have what is known as a high bottom, and some people have a low bottom. Hitting bottom is different from every person. But if you hit a high bottom, what that means is it doesn't take much for you to realize that you have a problem. Okay, I, I realize. I've done something. I, I knew a man uh, who went out and uh, recognized that he had a drinking problem. He was not an angry man. He was not a difficult man, but he was a heavy drinker. And one day he got in the car and he drove off and um, he woke up three hours later and the car was parked in some place and he couldn't remember how he got there. Now he realized he could have killed somebody along the way. But he realized, oh my goodness, I've got a problem. He hit bottom for him. It was a relatively high bottom. Other people, it's a low bottom. They have to go so far down, they're almost at the verge of dying sometimes before they realize they've got a problem. Some people never realize they do. As Christians, there comes a point where we have hit bottom, where we recognize we've got a problem with God. And furthermore, we can't make it right. That's what an alcoholic understands. If he's in recovery or she's in recovery, they understand they've got a problem and they can't fix it. That's why AA has one of its primary teachings, the notion of a higher power. You cannot do it yourself. The same is true for us. We cannot get right with God. We have declared war on God. And there's nothing that we can offer to God. That's the worst part. If you're at war with somebody and you realize you're, you're losing, what's the best thing to do? Surrender and make peace. Try to get something. Cut your losses. But the question is, what do we have to offer to God to make peace with Him that He cannot already supply for Himself? Nothing. See, the amazing thing is that God, who is the injured party, makes peace with us. That's the mercy. That's the grace. And that is what is life-changing. So we need to help people realize that they've got a problem. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. You can never share the gospel unless you tell people there is something from which they need to be saved. And once you bring people to that knowledge, then they will turn to Jesus Christ and you become a peacemaker. You've helped them to find peace with God. And then once you find peace with God, we should have peace, what, with one another? Because, listen, folk, we are all in the same sorry boat. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how illustrious your family may be. When it comes to spiritual matters, we're all broke. We're all bankrupt. And God, if he saves us, saves us by his grace and by his mercy. So to be a citizen of the kingdom of God means you are merciful because you've been shown mercy. You have an undivided heart because God has saved you. You are sold out for Him. You have a desire to bring others into the life-giving relationship that you are now experiencing. And as they come to have peace with God, they have peace with one another. And as people have peace with one another, lo and behold, peace comes to the earth. 
And finally, Jesus says, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are willing to be persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Well, how many feel that? How many of you feel blessed when you're persecuted? I'm not asking if you feel persecuted. I'm asking the question, how many of you feel blessed when you are? Well, that's not exactly what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you who are persecuted for what? Righteousness sake. You could be persecuted because you're just an irritating person. In which case, you probably deserve it. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear. If we have these qualities, if we have the inner attitude of being poor in spirit, if we mourn for our sins, if we are meek and we do not retaliate, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we have those inner attitudes and those lead to inner qualities like being merciful because we have received mercy, if it leads to people being pure in heart, having an undivided heart, wholly sold out to Jesus. He's not only your Savior, but He is your Lord. If you have a desire for people to have a relationship with God, that they might have peace, that peace which passes human understanding, peace with God so they can have the peace of God. And Jesus said that's a wonderful thing, but you better realize you're going to be persecuted. Why are we going to be persecuted if, if these are our qualities? Because Jesus said, these are not the qualities of the world. Is this what the world teaches us, my friends? Does the world tell us to have a poverty of spirit? No, the world tells you that you should be confident. Have a positive mental attitude. You're a good person. Jesus takes that and he does what? He turns it on his head. The world says you can justify yourself, just as that lawyer said to Jesus, I want to justify myself. I want to contribute something to this process. I don't want you to get all of the credit, all of the glory. I want a little bit of that for myself. And Jesus takes that and he turns it on its head. And the more he takes our world and its standards and its qualities and turns it on its head, the more unpopular you and I are going to be. That's why I say what Jesus is doing here is he's not giving us a prescription for citizens of the kingdom of God. He's giving us a description of the citizens of the kingdom of God, which means that if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you will be persecuted. And if you're not being persecuted, then you're probably not possessing some of these qualities. You're going to be an irritant, my friends, to a sinful world. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Do you remember the story of the woman who took the ointment, the expensive perfume, and broke it and anointed Jesus' feet? 
It was Mary, the sister of Martha. And she took that ointment and she wiped Jesus' feet with it. And the disciples began to grumble and they said, hey, listen, that was worth a lot of money. Well, what's an expensive perfume out there? I don't know. I don't wear perfume. So, to, you know, <laughs> you ladies know whatever it is, an expensive perfume. And she takes this and she lavishly pours it out on Jesus and she wipes his feet with her hair. And the next part of the verse says, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Why was it filled with the fragrance? Not just because she had anointed Jesus' feet, but because she had used her hair to wipe it. And wherever she went, that fragrance wafted through the air. And Jesus said, let her alone. She has done this as a, prepare, a preparation for my birth, and this will be her remembrance forever. You and I should be just like her. By our actions, by the way we live our lives, we should be wafting this sweet fragrance throughout the world. That's the picture you see. And that's what the Apostle Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians. He says, through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him is spread. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Do you ever think of yourself as that, as the aroma of Christ? What a wonderful expression. And yet Paul goes on to say this, to one a fragrance of death, to others the fragrance of life. That's very clear, isn't it? We are the aroma of Christ, and to some, that aroma is pleasing and attractive and wonderful for those who are being saved, for those who have hit bottom, for those who recognize they've got a problem and they need peace with God. But for those who are still out there trying to justify themselves, we represent the aroma of death. We are repulsive. And Paul doesn't say it's going to be one way or the other. He says it's going to be both and. For some, it's going to be one thing. For some, it's going to be the other. And in a world that is becoming increasingly secular, it's probably going to be the latter more than the former. And so he says, be prepared. Paul says this to his young friend Timothy. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy for just a moment. When Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy, he was imprisoned in Rome. He was awaiting trial for execution. The emperor at the time was Nero. Paul was imprisoned in a horrible place in Rome. You can still go and visit it today. It was called the Mamertine Jail. Now, if you're imagining some sort of nice state penitentiary, you got it all wrong. It was a dried-out, abandoned cistern, and you were lowered into it by a rope. It was so cramped that you had to sit. You could not lie down. Now imagine being in there for weeks with no ability to really stretch out. You would have had to sleep in a, in a crouched position. It was dark. There was hardly any lighting. They provided him with a candle and with a little bit of paper. And with that, down in that miserable pit, Paul wrote this letter to his young friend and protege, Timothy, who was far across the sea in Ephesus. And Paul wrote this letter to him because Paul realized his time was running out. Many people regard this as the last letter Paul ever wrote. 
So these are the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. And he knows that life is coming to an end. And yet he also knows that the gospel has got to be carried on among the Gentiles. The gospel has got to go to the ends of the earth. He's not going to be there to do it. The world is becoming increasingly hostile. His life is coming to an end. There are all kinds of false religions popping up all over the place. The emperor is beginning a systematic purge and persecution of the Christian church. And Paul is worried about what's going to happen to the future of the body of Christ. And he knows that he's got to pass the torch on. The baton has to go on to somebody else. And he's got to pass it on to this young man, Timothy. That's what this letter is all about. Paul is passing the baton of leadership, the responsibility for leading the church to Timothy. And let me tell you something. Timothy was nothing like Paul. When, do you think, when you think of the Apostle Paul, how many of you think of a shrinking violet? <laughs> Paul was many things. He was not a shrinking violet. He was a straight shooter. It got him into trouble from time to time. He was strong. He was courageous. For years he'd been out working. Timothy was a young man, probably only in his 20s, maybe his early 30s. Everything in the New Testament indicates that he was an introvert, whereas Paul was probably a raging extrovert. So he was shy. He was reticent. Paul must have had the constitution of an ox to travel all the places that he did and suffer all that he did. He catalogs all of the sufferings that he went through. He was beaten with rods. He was publicly flogged. He was thrown into jail. He was danger on the seas. He was danger on land. He had been shipwrecked. He'd been bitten by a venomous snake. You name it, it had happened to the Apostle Paul, and yet somehow he always managed to survive. Timothy was an introvert. He was young, and he was sickly. Paul speaks of him taking a little wine for his upset stomach. And Paul is passing the responsibility of leading the church on to him. A most unlikely leader. And so Paul wrote this letter, this second letter to Timothy, to get that young man ready for the job. Now what would you write to that young man? Words of encouragement? He certainly needs them. Who wants to step in the footsteps of somebody like the Apostle Paul? And Paul does give him words of encouragement, but Paul also is a realist. And he's going to do Timothy no favors by telling him that it's all going to be easy. He recognizes it's not. And that's why he wrote these words, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read them to you, but I just want you to stop and ask yourself, what kind of a world is Paul describing? Because I want you to know he wrote these words 2,000 years ago, in the first century. But I don't know about you, but when I read them, they're a description of the 21st century. This is not first century Rome or Ephesus, this is first 21st century America. So, imagine Paul writing to Timothy, but imagine Paul writing to you. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Notice Paul doesn't say they may come, they're likely to come. He says what? There will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Anybody watch the Supreme Court hearings? Without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Does that sound like a description of our world today? It's almost as though Paul could see into the future and knew exactly what our world was going to be like. That is a picture of our world today where people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, my goodness, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think this is the most damning statement of all. Having the appearance of godliness, that is all the trappings of religion, but denying its power. Well, my goodness, what do you do in a situation like that? Timothy probably wanted to write back and say, you know, thanks, Paul, but no thanks. But Paul goes on to say this. In verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And all the persecutions. See, Paul talks about persecutions. Whenever I read through 2 Timothy, I always imagine it being an ordination service. I don't know how many of you have ever been to an ordination service in the Anglican tradition, but there always comes a point where the preacher is delivering a sermon and then he'll turn to the person that's being ordained, called the ordinand, and he'll say, now stand up. I was just in an ordination a couple of nights ago over at St. John's Chapel, and the preacher was preaching, and at one point he said to the ordinand, he said, now stand up. And that's when the preacher gives the new person being ordained a charge, a charge. And so I imagine Paul preaching this ordination service to Timothy, and Timothy's just sitting there, and he's thinking about the weight and the responsibility and the awesomeness of the task before him. And he's feeling a little weighed down and certainly very frightened. And there comes this point where Paul says, All right, young man, stand up. Stand up. And he says this, chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is, when it's popular, when it's unpopular, when it's in vogue, when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What a wonderful expression. They'll have itching ears. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See, that's our job. That's the world in which you and I are living. We're living in that world in which people are lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They have the form of religion, but they deny its power. And I don't need to elaborate on that any more than I already have. 
And what do the apostles say to us? They say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time has come. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth. They're wandering off into myths. But as for you, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Jesus made it very clear. He said, if the world hated me, the world is going to hate you. If I was mistreated, you are going to be mistreated. Now, you may find that to be a rather depressing message. It is. But here's the good news. There are battles to be fought, but the war has been won. And in the end, in spite of the persecutions and the difficulties that we will face for being the aroma of Christ, the smell of life to some, the stench of death to others, the fact remains that in the end, the war has already been won. You and I, at best, are involved in a mop-up operation. The victory was won on Good Friday and Easter morning. And the next great event is what? The cavalry's coming back. The Lord will return in glory. The trump shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised. And all that is broken, all that is foul, all that is rebellious shall be made right. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the meantime, endure persecution. Do the work of an evangelist. You have received mercy. Be merciful. Be Christ-like to a world that desperately, although it does not want him, desperately, desperately needs him. And if you do, what will happen? Well, what will happen is that you will be salt and light. That's what happens next in Matthew's Gospel. And we've got all of five minutes to cover that. So let's just take a look at it. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For you are the salt of the earth. Jesus doesn't say you'll be. He says you are. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the light of the world. It's interesting to say Jesus said that he was the light of the world. But he turns to his disciples and he said, you are also the light of the world. What does it mean that we are the light of the world if Jesus is the light of the world? Who's the light of the world? Well, obviously Jesus is the light, but our light is like the light of the moon. Does the moon have any real light in and of itself? What does it do? It reflects the light of the sun. Now sometimes you'll know that it's a, it's a, it's a waning moon. <laughs> it's a waxing moon. Sometimes it's a full moon. 
And there are various times in the church when the, the faithful seem to only shine a little bit, but there are other times when it's the full orbed beauty. Whatever the case, you and I are to be like the moon. We are to reflect the light of Christ in the world. That's what Jesus says when he says, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, we can go through this rather quickly. You all know that in the first century, in an age before refrigeration, salt's primary purpose was to be a preservative. They didn't have refrigerators in those days. Ice was not readily available in the Middle East, particularly in the summer months. So what did they do? They salted material. They salted meat. They salted fish. Uh, you get um, cured ham, don't you? Virginia cured ham, it's what? It's salted, and it will last for a very long time. That was the primary function of salt in Jesus' day. It was to be a preservative. That's what Jesus said when he says, you are the salt of the earth. If you live like this, the description that he has given us there in the Beatitudes, he said, you will be. He says, you are, because this is a description, not a prescription. This is a description of the kingdom of God, and because of that, you are the salt of the earth. You are helping to stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay and putrefaction in the world. Now, you'll notice something about salt when it is used to keep a meat from going bad. You rub it in, and what happens to it? Well, it disappears. You don't see it. And that's why Jesus talks about persecution. There are times when we feel as though we're being rubbed out by the world. But the reality is, even though you cannot see the salt, can you taste it? You can still taste it, and you can still see its effect. Jesus is saying, if you're living like this, you are the salt of the earth. You will help stem the tide of decay. But of course, salt was not only used as a preservative, it was used as a condiment. I don't know if you're anything like me. I know there are doctors out there in the crowd, and I'm going to say something that's not, I'm not supposed to say, but I just, I'm just, confession is good for the soul. Whenever I get food, almost the first thing I do is grab for the salt shaker. Because food without salt is tasteless. It's bland. You're saying, blah, exactly. And that's what life is without Jesus Christ. You can have everything that money can afford, but you're still searching for something. As the rock group U2 said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There are many people just like that in the world today. They haven't found what they're looking for. And what they're really looking for is Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal once said that there is a Christ-shaped void in every person's life, a Christ-shaped hold. If you've ever done a puzzle, one of those huge puzzles with thousands of pieces, and you get to the very end, and you've done the whole thing, it's magnificent, it's a forest, or it's a castle, or it's waterfall, or whatever, you get to the very end, and there's one piece missing right in the middle it's the most frustrating thing. Why? Because no matter how good the rest of it looks, it's incomplete. And you can go out and buy some other puzzle or go rummaging around and find another puzzle and try to hammer another piece in, but there's only one piece that fits. And the same is true in your life and in my life. There's only one piece that fits, and it is Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, it doesn't matter what else you do have, your life is incomplete. And there are many people's lives who are incomplete. They're living a bland existence. And they need some flavor. 
you and I are supposed to show them what real living, what real life, what real joy is really all about. Salt was used for medicinal purposes, sometimes rubbed into wounds. It could be painful. We speak of rubbing salt into wounds. But if you've ever had an abrasion on your, your leg and you go swimming in the ocean, one of the things you'll notice is that the salt, actually, the salt water can facilitate the healing process. That's what you and I are called to be as salt in the world. Stem the tide of decay. Bring zest and flavor to life so that people can see what it's really all about and help heal the broken relationships and the pain and the sorrow. Another thing about salt is that it's common. You can find salt almost anywhere on the face of the earth. It's not hard to look for. Diamonds are not easy to find, but salt is easy to find anywhere. You don't have to be great, my friends. You can be a regular person and still be the salt of the earth. God's not looking for PhDs and Harvard graduates necessarily, although he'll take those. But he'll use anybody. And as I said, it's invisible, but you can still taste it. You can still see its effect. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. As we've already said, it's a reflected light. It's not our light. Jesus is the only true light, but we are to reflect that light. And what it implies is that the world is dark, my friends. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, it implies that the world is dark. Most of the crimes take place at dark. Most accidents take place at night. Why? Because people cannot see. And people are wandering around in the dark, and they need the light to illuminate. Now, light does two things. It exposes. And this is one of the reasons why Christians get persecuted. When you begin to shine the light of Christ in somebody's life, or when Christ begins to shine his light in your life, it exposes certain things. I always say, when you take somebody out for a romantic dinner, you don't go to a restaurant where they have fluorescence. You want a candlelight dinner, don't you? Why do you want a candlelit dinner? Because everybody looks better in candlelight. Ah, but you turn on those brights and what? You can see every flaw, every blemish, every crack, every crease. Don't you just love candlelight? See, the light of Christ will expose all of our flaws, all of our blemishes. But then the light can do one thing more. The light can bring growth. When I was a little boy, we used to go and hunt for critters. I, I think this is the reason I hate snakes today. I ran around with a group of boys who sometimes used to like to go out and go snake hunting. Now, in the part of Pennsylvania where I grew up, we didn't really have the venomous snakes here. I mean, everything down here bites you, sticks you, or whatever. I mean, cotton mouths and copperheads and rattlesnakes and just terrifying creatures. Up there, we had black snakes and garter snakes. There was a rattlesnake every now and then, but rarely did you run into them where we lived. And so they would go out and they would, um, you know, look for these. And the best place to look for snakes was over a, under a log or under a, a piece of plywood out in a field. You pick that up, and the first thing that happens is the light shines down, and you, the first thing you see are what? All these critters running for cover. All the creepy crawlies, the worms and the bugs and the insects are all going for cover, because that's what has happened. The light has exposed them. And when you kick over that log or you turn over that piece of plywood, not only do you see everything scatter, but you also see that the grass underneath it is sickly. It's white. It's matted down. But here's the amazing thing. 
leave it exposed to the light for just a couple of days and come back and that which was sickly has suddenly come back to life again. And that's what Jesus Christ wants to do. He wants to kick over the log in your life and he wants to expose it. And it's uncomfortable. But the whole purpose is that we might grow under his tender and life-giving light into the full stature of Jesus Christ. An illustration, John chapter 8. And we'll close with this today. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes of the Pharisees brought forth a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, then, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Who are we in that story? You and I are the woman caught in adultery, aren't we? That's who we are. We've been caught red-handed, having violated the law of God, and we are condemned before the law of God. And Jesus Christ comes... And he steps between our sin and God's righteous judgment. And he takes the punishment upon himself. And then he turns to us as he turned to this woman. And he says, who are they that condemn you? And we say, Lord, because of what you have done for us on the cross, because of your full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction, there are none to condemn me. And then Jesus says, very well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You have received mercy. Be merciful. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Sermon on the Mount. We can read through it in a matter of minutes, but we could spend a whole lifetime studying just this section of Scripture and realize how much it applies to us individually. We are to have a change in attitude if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, a different outlook, a different worldview. We are to have a different character than the rest of the world. Because we have a different attitude and a different character, we are to have a different impact, a different influence. Grant us the grace individually and corporately as the parish of St. Philip to be salt and light in a bland and dying and decaying world. 
Grant us the great to be, to be light in a world that is darkened, in which people are lost and in desperate need of salvation. Grant this for your tender mercy's sake and for the honor of your name. For we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.